Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's Robert M. Price, your friendly neighborhood Bible geek. One announcement uh, before I forget it, as I otherwise would. Uh, I am going to try to uh, do two Bible Geeks a week. Uh, I used to do three or four uh, a few years back, and I've become increasingly busy, and it's uh, kind of put the Bible Geek uh, to, to the side during most of the week, but I'm going to try to have two a week. I think that would uh, um, help maintain interest in higher critical erudition. Um one thing I would like to do, sort of out of the ordinary, uh, is to uh, read you a brief article of mine that will appear in a very slightly different form in the next issue of the Christian New Age Quarterly, edited by my friend and former church secretary, uh, Catherine Groves. And, uh, and you can easily find out more about that by just looking up uh, Christian New Age Quarterly. Um there is an asterisk between Christian and New, Christian New Age Quarterly. It'd be easy to find, I'm sure. So uh, this is um, um, based uh, on the TV show Preacher, which I hope you watched. Uh, the Theology of Preacher. The AMC television adaptation of the graphic novel series Preacher has now come and gone, its four broadcast seasons completed. Let me confess right up front that I have not read the Preacher comic books, though for years friends have insisted that I should. Maybe I shall someday, but for the present, I'm concerned only with the TV series. It is an aesthetic object in its own right. There may be um, other very different aspect of the print version, though I doubt there is much contradiction since the original comics creator Garth Ennis is also the executive producer of the show. In any case, the major concern of the TV show seems to be the character of God, theology proper. And by the way, Preacher is the wildest and most hilariously blasphemous show I have ever seen and thoroughly enjoyed. The initial season focuses on a mysterious force called Genesis, which, as we eventually learn, is the forbidden offspring of a demon and an angel. It seems to be something of an impersonal power, one that seeks a human host. Its first attempts to bond with a Russian it first attempts to bond with a Russian Satanist guru, but instead the cult leader is bloodily destroyed in the encounter. Next, it tries to possess Tom Cruise, apparently because of his reputation as a figurehead of the Church of Scientology, but the actor fares no better. 
Finally, Genesis finds suitable accommodation in the Reverend Jesse Custer. Henceforth, Jesse is able to command and control anyone by speaking with the echoing baritone of the indwelling Genesis. Jesse is sort of an anti-heroic Christ figure. The letters of his name suggest um, an incomplete letter jumble of Jesus Christ. No accident there. Why does Genesis succeed in finding a fit vessel in Jesse? Jesse is not evil like the doomed Russian, or he would have proven a suitable candidate. What was wrong with Tom Cruise, I don't know. But Jesse Custer was morally ambivalent, perfect for the entity born from the mating of an angel and a devil. You see, Jesse's father was a devout fundamentalist minister whose fanatical zeal led him to raise his son with an iron fist. Young Jesse grew to hate him for it. He thought God had answered his prayers when his dad was murdered right in front of him, as we later learn by a goon in the employ of his grandmother, an ancient witch who also had, Jess had Jesse's mother killed. Jesse later teamed up with his childhood love, Tulip, another warped survivor of a dysfunctional family. The duo terrorized the countryside as a latter-day Bonnie and Clyde. Until, that is, Jesse repented as best he could, left Tulip, and took over the pulpit of his late father. Like Saul of Tarsus, Jesse had been the chief of sinners, but now preached the gospel to his struggling congregation. By the way, though, having eschewed crime, he still cusses, smokes, and swills the booze. He is a flawed recipient of a flawed divine force. It is a strange kind of adoptionist Christology. Early on in the series, we meet a secret cabal, the Grail, uh, which will do anything to protect the sacred lineage of Jesus Christ, as in Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. You see, Jesus was himself something of a flawed messiah. He once went to bed with a female disciple, Mary Magdalene, and was thereby disqualified to be the messiah for the second coming. Instead, God the Father decided that a remote descendant of Jesus and Mary would receive that honor. One problem, this Messiah waiting in the wings in the Grail's custody is severely retarded, the Christ DNA having become corrupted during the long chain of transmission. His sole role as Messiah will be to dance, clad in a sequined white tux, cane in hand, to give me that old soft shoe. Once the spectacle appears on national and international TV, it will signal an atomic submarine to launch a fusillade of nukes, bringing about the annihilation of the human race. God wants it over. More on that shortly. Let's move back a few steps. Having ruffled a few too many feathers, Jesse promises to turn the church over to a local meatpacking magnate who plans to demolish the place, unless God accepts Jesse's challenge to show up visibly in church the following Sunday. And lo and behold, he does. 
He entertains predictable Job-like questions from the stunned congregation, but finally admits he is only a stand-in for God who has now gone missing. We later learn that God panicked and skipped town when he heard about the birth of Genesis, whose power might prove to be greater than his own. Once this astonishing news breaks, Jesse and two confederates, important characters but not relevant here, hit the road looking for the real God. They have several run-ins with Grail agents. The newest leader of the Grail, Herr Starr, cannot imagine the retarded Christ, whom he has assigned the silly name of Humperdew, bearing the messianic mantle. Talk about a flawed messiah. Herr Starr decides Jesse would make a better messiah and tries to recruit him, but Jesse turns down the job. Again, he brushes against the messianic role, but decides he wants nothing to do with any plot to precipitate the apocalypse. But he is beginning to understand God's ominous plan. And guess what? God, too, turns out to be pretty flawed. He is engineering the end because he is sick and tired of the mess the human race has made of things. In fact, while roaming the highways of the Southwest in his trailer, God is working on a whole raft of new creatures to replace humanity. He loves us, but he feels we do not reciprocate sufficiently. In the beginning, God was alone. Uh, and lonely, which is why he created us, but now he is filled with creator's remorse, precisely as in Genesis 6, 5 through 7. God is depicted here as petty, vengeful, and capricious, all the while insisting in tones of thunder that he is a loving God. This double talk leads Jesse, when he at last confronts God, to excoriate him as, quote, a needy little bitch, unquote, who must never resume his position in heaven. Whence cometh this blasphemous depiction of God? The source is not far to seek. It is in your heart. It is on the tip of your tongue. It comes straight from the Bible, doesn't it? Though Jehovah boasts his everlasting loving kindness, he commands genocide against whole Canaanite nations. He electrocutes a well-meaning Levite for daring to steady the Ark of the Covenant lest it fall into a ditch. He incinerates a pair of hapless priests for goofing up the sacrificial incense. He makes poor Job into Satan's punching bag just to settle a bet. He bars Moses from entering the promised land just because, irritated, Moses hit the rock with his staff instead of just speaking to it as Jehovah commanded. Not exactly love divine, all loves excelling, is it? On a more philosophical level, Preacher unflinchingly demonstrates the implications of objectifying God, picturing him as a being among beings, one more link in the chain of worldly cause and effect. That is the very essence of mythology. For instance, in myths, abstract transcendence is represented as vertical distance up there. The mind-blasting terror of the numinous becomes the dangerous anger of a threat-spewing god. 
If God plans to clear the earth of human life, he must use the same methods humans would, atomic holocaust. The makers of the film Devil's Advocate took the same approach to the devil. He corrupts the world using a crooked law firm, black market weapons trading, assassinations, etc. He's pretty much George Soros, using worldly means as an actor on the same plane as the humans he corrupts. Not principalities and powers in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 6.12, just a James Bond villain. As near as I can tell, Preacher strives to present a consistent portrayal of the biblical-slash-Christian deity and succeeds. It shines the light on all those shadows in the biblical image of God that Christian readers try to ignore because they would rather believe in a loving deity. Maybe there is an idealized, squeaky-clean God, but he is alien to the Bible except for propagandistic PR. Jesse Custer makes clear that he believes God is at best superfluous, that the world can get along at least as well without God. The end of the series seems to reinforce the point. God, just having made his return to the heavenly throne room, is startled to meet the Saint of Killers, a ghost from hell seen in various episodes. In life, he had taken revenge on a 19th century frontier town, killing everyone in it. He is sent back by various enemies to kill Jesse in various episodes. As I say, he finally shows up in heaven and assassinates God, and then he takes the divine throne for himself. Murderous hate will henceforth rule the universe. But the story leaps ahead 40 years, and things look pretty much the same. No black skies, no rampaging demons, no gaping hell mouths or fire pits. Life goes on. And I think the point is that it doesn't really matter who the supreme being is, or even if there is one. Divine providence produces the same results as the lack of it. The claim of divine providence is, in the end, unfalsifiable, compatible with any and every state of affairs, and thus meaningless. That, as I see it, is the theology of preacher. Okay, um, again, you can read this uh, slightly cleaned up edi editorially in the next issue of the Christian New Age Quarterly. I've, I've had loads of stuff in there. If you've ever read any of my uh, stories of St. Iodasaf, they all appeared there first. So, okay, I think you'll uh, enjoy that and uh, the whole thing, uh, right? uh, and not, not just this. And with that, let's get into some exciting Bible questions. And uh, here's the rain barrel. Uh, who's this? Uh, Lodher. Yeah. Mark 16.9 refers to prote sabatu, uh, or prote, yeah, uh, he gives it in, in English letters. There are various explanations and, ar and arguments about how this phrase should be translated. They seem to be divided into two camps. One group believes it should refer to the first of the week or Sunday. The other camp, including Sabbatarians, and some literal translations, prefer something that refers to the Sabbath, 
uh, like the first of the Sabbaths or the first Sabbath, as uh, parenthetically mentioned, you know, in, in Hebrew, Sabbath means the seven day or seventh day or a seven day week. Okay, arguments on both sides always seemed to me like rationalizations about how ancient languages might have behaved based on pre-existing beliefs. The Bible becomes a ventriloquist dummy, uh, as you often remind us. A problem with translating Prote Sabatu as the first of the week is it could refer to either Sunday or Monday in modern times. Though Monday does fit the three-day timeline better, I suspect that it would be anachronistic. But wouldn't it be within God's power to change the past so that it did happen that way, even though it didn't? Boy, you're really getting into weird stuff there. A problem with translating the phrase to refer to a Sabbath is that Mary and the rest would have been visiting the tomb the day after Jesus was crucified or eight days later. I've recently learned that Cantonese has an analogous way to refer to the days of the week, which illustrates that such usage was not just made up by Bible translators. Though not secret, I haven't heard anyone else mention it, so I thought you might be interested. In Cantonese, one of the days used to refer to the week is Libai, which refers to worship. Some Sabbatarians, Sabbath observers, may prefer not to use this word, instead preferring to say Sinkai, which more generically refers to a cycle of days. The day of reference is Sunday, Lai Bai Yut, uh, where Yut refers to the sun in the sky. The other days are numbered. First, Lai Bai Yut, uh, higher pitch. Second, Tuesday, Lai by ye, and so forth. Lai by some, lie by say, lie by m, lie by lok. Since the day of worship is referenced, uh, in as referenced in Mark is the Sabbath, the first prote sabbatu would be Sunday. Thanks a bunch, Lauder. I had no idea about that or anything else connected with Cantonese. Yes, the Bible geek is startlingly ignorant on a lot of fronts. But I'm glad you aren't. Thanks. Okay, howdy, sir, geek. Will from Texas here. Uh, some setup. An acquaintance of mine is a strongly fundamentalist Protestant Christian. My question relates to the particular sect he belongs to, the non-denominational Church of Christ. I've not been able to easily look up the history and beliefs of this particular group due to the very generic name. However, some of their ten tenets are as follows. No instruments in church. Make music with your heartstrings and find me an example in the New Testament where an instrument is used in worship. You must be dunked fully in water during baptism and can only be baptized once into the true baptism. And if baptized, quote, under denominationalism, unquote, it's not the true baptism, so you must be baptized again for the first time after confessing your sins and proclaiming the Lord. No infant or child baptism. Sola Scriptura. 
Denominationalism is not Christianity, and if you die a Baptist, you go to hell. Anti-Calvinist, anti-charismatics, the perfect to come, spoken of by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, um, uh, uh, since the perfect has come, that is why, I'm sorry, the perfect to come, spoken of by Paul, is the Bible. And since the perfect has come, that is why there are no miracles nowadays. Miracles do not happen, but providence does. This is a fairly common branch of Protestant Christianity where I live, with at least four churches in my suburb alone, each having 80-plus members. I feel there has to be a general name with which I can use to research them more. I've heard you mention dispensationalism, and it sounded uh, possibly in the correct track. Does this match up? Would you mind running through some of the types of Christianity like charismatic, dispensationalist, etc., and what you tend to mean by those terms? Okay, well, um, I think the uh, broad name for this uh, denomination, uh, despite their nasty statements about denominations, if this is what I think it is, it's Campbellite. Uh, there are two or three Campbellite denominations named for Alexander Campbell, who was the um, the founder of the Restorationist movement uh, back in the I think the 19th century. Uh, whereas traditional Protestantism said, if any if any church belief or practice contradicts the Bible, then to hell with it. Uh, you you uh, can't do it. Uh, but, of course, there are others that are not attested in the Bible, but don't seem to contradict it, and um, where people have just, you know, inevitably filled in gaps uh, in what the Bible says. Uh, but the restorationists said, if it's not taught, or at least um, exemplified in the Bible, uh, you can't do it. So it's a, it's a biblical minimalist in the uh, small m sense. And uh, they are against music uh, because they feel like that is uh, alien to scripture. And again, if it's, I mean, what is wrong with it on the face of it? Well, nothing necessarily, but you don't find it in the Bible, so can't do it. Now, do you or don't you find it in the Bible? Uh, that uh, depends on a couple of critical decisions because many of the um, epigraphs uh, of, of the Psalms, you know, what's written above the, the actual text in, in the Bible, uh, it will, it says, um, for the so-and-so, and it seems to be a reference to musical instruments, and that says, according to so-and-so tune. Is that in the Bible or isn't it? Well, it looks like editorial additions, Though who knows, right? I mean, that's a kind of higher critical question that you wouldn't think these people would much appreciate. Uh, also, in Colossians, it urges the readers to sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, a psalm, uh, the Greek word means a song accompanied by musical instruments. But on the other hand, it's certainly uh, not impossible 
not even really unlikely that they simply mean the text of the Psalms to come up with a viable tune since nobody knew what the original tunes were and uh, sing it. And of course, you hear people do that today, right? And um, sometime uh, very nicely. So uh, who knows, right? It might be in the Bible, but uh, hard to say. Um, the uh, the baptism, if I'm not mistaken, Campbellites, and that, that would include uh, the Christian church, disciples of Christ, and the church of Christ. Easy to get those mixed up. Both are Campbellite. I don't know what the difference is. Uh, but they believe in, uh, in baptismal regeneration. Not only do you have to be saved, but uh, you're not saved if you don't get immersed in water. It's not that, I don't think they think there's any miraculous or magical character to it. Uh, it doesn't transubstantiate you or something, but it's a matter of obedience to Christ, since in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he talks about baptizing all converts. Well, you're no Christian if you say, well, yeah, I know Jesus said it, but I'm not going to bother with that. Well, what? <laughs> Uh, it's kind of like uh, Warfield said about biblical inerrancy. He said, you can well imagine Christianity could exist and succeed without any inspired Bible or indeed without any Bible at all. But since the Lord Jesus expressed his view of an infallible scripture, you know, you're going to disagree? Uh, if Jesus is your Lord, of course, you're going to share his, quote, opinion. And I, I think that's the idea that um, that you, you're hardly accepting Jesus as your Lord if the first thing you do is to disregard the last thing he said to do. So, yeah, this you don't mention that, but this this importance of baptism, that I suspect it's part of the same package. Now, you say they're anti-charismatic, uh, and that they're anti-Calvinist, though uh, something you say also they have in common with Calvinism, this idea that when it says um, in First Corinthians, uh, I'm sorry, it's 13, not 15, uh, says um, when the perfect is come, uh, the imperfect shall pass away. Uh, now, yeah, we've got uh, revealed knowledge, we've got prophecy, we've got tongues, but uh, these things are just drops in the bucket. They're, they're just flashes. The real thing will bring total knowledge. We will know as we are known. And you know, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And they have a kind of a, what you might call, a preterist view. Uh, Paul's talking about the completion of the canon of Scripture. That always seemed utterly ludicrous to me, uh, that uh, because um, just picture any Christian who was a contemporary of Paul and could ask him questions by letter or in person, uh, and that's just to name one apostle, wouldn't you think any listener for an hour to Paul uh, would uh, be much better informed than the most uh, studious Bible scholar today? I mean, uh, it sure would be clearer and no doubt more uh, voluminous. So that that always seemed absurd to me. But, uh, I, however, I have to admit that reading David Trobish's great book, the first edition of the New Testament, where he argues very compellingly that... Um, 
uh, that Polycarp of Smyrna put together the 27-book New Testament we have and did some editing on it, that when he says oh, two things in the book of Revelation, when it says uh, that uh, if anyone adds to the revelations in this book, you know, the plagues described herein will be added to his sorry ass, and uh, whoever takes anything away, well, uh, his name is going to be chopped from the book of life, so hands off. Uh, that uh, is often taken to refer to the whole darn Bible, since editors place the book of Revelation after it, even though some, after the rest of it, even though some think that it's earlier than any other New Testament book. But um, I thought that was absurd. Um, and yet, that is the basis for dispensationalist and Calvinist uh, refusal to accept any written or oral revelations, hence the anti-charismatic thing. Those poor people may think they're uh, reading off new revelations from God, but uh, they can't be. They're just talking out of their hats uh, because God has given the all-sufficient revelation in the Bible and don't try to add anything, even implicitly. Of course, that's another reason they hate the Book of Mormon and uh, things like that. Uh, and uh, But back to this, when the perfect has come, uh, Trobisch suggests that that may be intended by Polycarp, who added it, you know, theoretically he might have, in order to say, yeah, we don't really want the chaos of tongues and prophecy anymore, so maybe uh, once the Bible is finished, as I just did, editing it together into a definitive compilation, you don't need any of that fanaticism. Um, I have to admit, understanding it that way does kind of make sense. Of course, it wouldn't be Paul saying this, uh, but uh, nonetheless, the point might be the same as Calvinists and dispensationalists say, but charismatics, of course, don't take it that way because they believe God still inspires prophecy, revelation, glossolalia. Uh, let's see. Uh, by the way, these things overlap because there are many charismatics and their their uh, parent uh, movement, Pentecostalism. Many of them are also dispensationalists. Uh, uh, the uh, like the Dallas Seminary Schofield Reference Bible type dispensationalists are quick to say, yeah, the Bible is the perfect and there's no more revelation for this dispensation. God allowed revelations, etc., during the early period of the church because they really needed evidence back then. They really needed convincers uh, for uh, their uh, the targets of their evangelization. But now that we got the Bible, we, we really don't need that. The Bible itself is pretty convincing. Cal Calvinists even say it's self-authenticating. But you can use that argument, but Pentecostals and Charismatics, even when otherwise they do divide Bible history into various administrative arrangements or dispensations throughout history, uh, they don't think that New Revelation is excluded simply because 
the um, we're still in for two thousand years the dispensation of grace, the same one in which uh, speaking in tongues happened, according to Paul and in the Book of Acts. So they say, oh yeah, we we do believe in dispensations, but you guys are like sneaking in an extra one. Uh, so they they don't agree on on that. Um, the differences between dispensationalists and Calvinists have to do with how soon anybody in the in Bible history knew to expect the coming of Jesus to die for sins and rise from the dead and include Gentiles and the people of God. Uh, the um, and and how soon the Holy Spirit indwelt the righteous. The Calvinists say, well. South history, and they kind of imagine that not only the prophets, but even some, even the many of the righteous in the Old Testament knew full well that Jesus would one day come, and He was really going to be the uh, the bulwark of salvation, the basis for it. Uh, the Book of Mormon takes that idea and really runs with it. I mean, the, the the righteous in the Old Testament period even call themselves Christians and know Jesus is going to die and rise. I mean, they really take this far. Dispensationalists are a little more like uh, higher critical liberals and saying, no, come on. Um, there may be hidden prophecies in the Bible, but they were hidden until Christianity started, and people took a second look at them. There's no way Abraham or David or any of these guys understood uh, that Jesus was going to come and do thus and so. I mean, occasionally the prophets predicted, like in Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, but it's not clear that they even knew really what they were talking about. And uh, often dispensationalists and Calvinists will say, yeah, there, there was a second meaning. Just like uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, sectarians thought, the Pesher method of exegesis. That, uh, sure, there's the surface sense, but God had smuggled in secret uh, mysteries that could only be understood in retrospect once their prophecies had come true. So... Um, Charismatic, by the way, of course, refers to the charism or the anointing with the Holy Spirit and his gifts. And uh, Charismatics and Pentecostals expect a lot more of that in the present day. They, they uh, figure, well, people still need some convincing. This, of course, is a big, the reverse, the mirror image of a, an atheist or skeptical argument one often hears why wouldn't there be any miracles today when we're 2,000 years after the events? How are we supposed to know this stuff is true? It looks like mythology. I mean, maybe it isn't, but it sure doesn't seem to be history. Um, sure seems to be mythology. Surely if God wanted us to make an honest decision, he would make it possible to be convinced without just making a leap of faith. Uh, and, I mean, that's what the followers of Jim Jones did and Charlie Manson, right? They had leaps of faith, too. Uh, conventional Christians are luckier than that, but it might be as, as uh, weakly founded. Okay, thanks, Will. Uh, he's going to come back in a minute. I got a couple from him, and I never mind having loads of questions by a single person. Okay, but this one is from... Uh, Robert Vitt. Uh, Robert, there's something about that name. Anyway, I couldn't help but notice a similarity between Diogenes and Nietzsche's parable of the madman. 
Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God! I seek God! Compare that to fragments depicting Diogenes carrying a lantern. This is from Diogenes Laertius, a different Diogenes, uh, from the lives of the prominent philosophers. He lit a lamp in broad daylight and said, as he went about, I'm looking for a man, uh, you know, a real man, a human, whatever, a mensch. Uh, this fragment comes to you, ironically, from Diogenes Laertius. Uh, uh, I guess it's uh, book six, uh, paragraph 41. Apparently, this fragment is also translated, I'm looking for an honest man. Uh, and that's the way we usually think of it, right? Uh, that in, uh, in Greek, it's lux non meth hemeran apsas perine legon anthropon zeto. Yeah, um... What is the relationship here? Given Nietzsche's deep knowledge of ancient Greek philosophy, uh, it seems too uncanny to be an accident. What is the connection here between cynicism and Nietzsche? If you have any ideas, it'd be greatly appreciated. Well, simply, I think you're exactly right. I mean, certainly he's depicting the, the mad prophet as a new Diogenes, and, uh, but with a different message that uh, there, uh, there is, that God is dead and uh, this shakes everything up. There's no longer any objective uh, truth out there. And uh, that is to say that God is dead. But yeah, I I'm absolutely sure that you're right. Once I did a, uh, a prayer breakfast sermon at the, the first, I think it was the first uh, Necronomicon with a capital C, a uh, big Lovecraft thing. And uh, I uh, said that Old Whateley, Wizard Whateley and the Dunwich Horror uh, comes into Osborne's general store to announce the birth of his grandson, Wilbur Whateley. One day you folks will hear Willie calling his father's name from Sentinel Hill. Yog Safoth! Well, that's based on it, too. Uh, and uh, it, it's great. I'm glad to see it getting reincarnated in these literary forms. So congratulations. You are certainly correct, Robert. Uh, Mace from Texas here. I believe it's the same as Will a moment ago. Uh, let's see... I am personally, oh yeah, Texas, I'm personally uh, some blend uh, agnostic, adoptionist, Christian, and deist. My girlfriend is Church of Christ, the non-denominational quote-unquote group, and is attempting to convert me to that faith. As part of this, I have a weekly Bible study and one-on-one -on -one with her preacher. I have found it quite interesting because they are fundamentalist in nature, but not quite the same as what I've seen elsewhere. Some examples. Revelation is intended as an analogy for Rome, but is also predicting the coming end times. Well, that's having your cake and eating it, too. The 144,000 are not literal, nor will there be an Antichrist, etc. However, the number of the beast is not about Nero. Uh, let's see. Uh, 
all of the prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament are simultaneously about their surface meaning and also about Christ. For instance, David's psalm is about David being surrounded by enemies on all sides, but is also a prediction of Jesus broken on the cross and his garments being torn. David, the person himself, is also a prophecy of Jesus somehow. You must take into account the genre, they say, right? You must take into account the genre of the parts of the Bible, apocalypse, parable, etc., and who the eyewitness authors were writing for. Ergo, when uh, the, they claim, Apostle John has Jesus and Nicodemus make the born again pun, uh, that is, you know what that is, right? Unless a man is born anothen, he cannot uh, see the kingdom of God, and anothen is a Greek word that can mean both um, from above or again, and that seems pretty obviously to mean both in that passage. Uh, John is writing a Greek version of the conversation as it happened, where some kind of confusion about being born again occurred because it made the point more memorable for Greek followers, even if the original language was Aramaic and didn't have the particular play on words. Uh, you know, that uh, I have thought about that myself, to be fair about it, but it just seems to me too close for comfort, and uh, you're beginning to admit that it's not actually a transcript of what Jesus said. Well, then, uh, you know, you can very easily slide downhill into the higher criticism, which says, yeah, the whole Gospel of John is the author's version of Jesus, and there's no real history to it. But it's obvious this pastor is somewhat sophisticated. He's taking into account, though I don't know to what extent, uh, the, the different genres, and that does matter. Uh, but you're also you're kind of letting the camel's nose under the tent flap there, too, because uh, soon you're going to start saying, well, some parables are told by Jesus. Jesus is a character in some parables and so forth. The idea that the authors are eyewitnesses, that's just uh, you know inertia from the days of the Protestant rationalists who said that, okay, there aren't any miracles, and that means no divine inspiration, but the Bible's true, so uh, how could it be? Well, the authors must have been eyewitnesses. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, let's see, though. The aspect in particular I want to ask information about is their belief in miracles, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible itself. We're going to return here to something we discussed in a moment ago. To this sect, the perfect, referred to in 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 10, is the Bible itself, and that is why there are no modern-day miracles, combined with the idea that miracles were designed to show someone's power was from God and to help them perform great works so others could believe. Now that the Bible is here, there is no need for this, as it is the perfected word of God. What evidence for this idea is there within the Bible, aside from the obvious issues that the Bible is riddled with incompatibilities and inaccuracies that would make it far from perfect? Well, I've already discussed that, sort of, but uh, uh, let me just say that stories of miracles are not miracles. 
right? Uh, there, there is no particular reason to believe these miracles happen. Granted, you'd have to take the faith a lot more seriously if you had seen a miracle or um, experienced one, but you're not in that position. Think of the story of Doubting Thomas. Uh, the uh, disciples are gathered when Jesus shows up after uh, his resurrection, and so they're all believers, but uh, it turns out uh, Thomas was out picking up the pizzas and uh, didn't see Jesus with him. He said, what? Yeah, Jesus appeared as, yeah, right. Uh, look, I'm not going to believe that until I see him and touch his wounds. So I know it's not some hallucination or something. And then suddenly Jesus appears. So yeah, smart guy, kind of like uh, Jehovah appearing in the cyclone at the end of Job. And he says, uh, uh, here, touch the nail prints, touch the, the stab wound in my side. Um, be not unbelieving, but believing. And uh, it doesn't, interestingly, it doesn't say that Thomas did that, uh, but it, it convinced him what he saw, and he bows before him and says, my Lord and my God. Uh, it's in the vocative case, so he's saying it to Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, and this is obviously breaking the fourth wall. Jesus is saying to the reader, uh, as, as if to, to Thomas, he says, Do you believe because you have seen? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Well, there you go. Hey, you have your doubts. Well, so did Tom, and his, his doubts were cured this way, so I guess yours will be due. No! Uh, just like Thomas only heard the report of these other disciples and didn't buy it, how is the report that uh, he appeared to Thomas any more convincing to us? And surely we are more in need of, of these uh, uh, of uh, miracles or some kind of convincer than uh, they were 2,000 years ago, right, uh, by the events. So, plus it's, um, as, as geez, I never remember, was it Rousseau or Voltaire who said, if I make an apple, if I hold an apple in my hand and say, now I'm going to prove to you that two plus two equals three by making this apple disappear, and lo and behold, somehow I do manage to make the piece of fruit disappear, not by eating it, right, it vanishes. Does that prove two and two equals three? Uh, no. Proves I can make the apple disappear, but that's it. Uh, that you, you can't uh, go from one to the other logically. One has nothing to do with the other. So uh, that uh, seems to me, you know, that's the uh, miracle thing is just so sad. Plus, there were, there were charlatans and illusionists in the ancient world, too, and people were gulled into believing all kinds of things by crass tricksterism. Uh, there's just no way to, to read stories in which people are amazed at having seen something and saying, well, they must have been right and they must have been correct in their uh, belief about causation. Come on. In fact, it is hilarious to read uh, Christian apologists who debunk uh, the miracles of other religions and of medieval chronicles and say, however, uh, you know, those have 
Jesus or attested by eyewitnesses. Come on, come off it. Uh, and uh, as I like to say, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to believe. Okay, well, that's going to be it for tonight's uh, exciting episode of The Bible Geek. But there is more to come. Uh, if you haven't yet uh, bought a copy of my exciting new book, uh, Jesus Christ Superstition, I urge you to order one off of, uh, of uh, Amazon. And if you're interested in some fiction... I have a collection of my horror stories, a new edition of a book that came out many years ago called Blasphemies and Revelations. I think you'll get a kick out of that. Uh, also, um, though I only share with the larger public my uh, human Bible podcasts, because uh, usually they're just for uh, Patreon pledgers, uh, you might be interested in that. I'm trying to do them a bit more often lately, and uh, it only takes a buck a month to do it if everybody did. Uh, things would be a lot easier around here. So uh, check that out, The Bible Geek and The Human Bible. And if you happen to be an H.P. Lovecraft devotee, I know some of you are, I'm trying to get the, uh, the Lovecraft geek back on track, though there I am uh, slowed down by the low volume of questions sent me. I do have a few in the slime bucket, but I need more. So, a uh, lot going on here, and I'll see you next time on The Bible Geek. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.